Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Franklin Graham. How do we avoid being Pharisees online? And then Don Everts is going to join us. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm, and we are glad to have you with us today. Just glad that it's Friday. Made it to the end of the week. The weekend's ahead of us. And I hope that you are looking forward to a great weekend. As we get started, a couple reminders. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. And you can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, Go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. Ian, happy Friday. I remember you told us earlier this week, you guys do a big... uh, you and your wife and, and kids have been doing some Sabbath, um, some Sabbath. That sounded somewhat <laughs> sacrilegious. <laughs> you've been you've been kind of doing a more intentional Sabbath on Friday night. Does that change your Friday? Do you like uh, kind of wake up kind of excited for that as you go about your Friday? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that was one of our commitments early on was we, we want our kids to have a really like positive experience around it. So we have like a special mm-hmm. we call it Shabbat just because it's, it's so funny to hear them say shabbat like i'll shout they're like we love shabbat i'm like yeah, that's right that's right you do son it's amazing and yes you do so we're trying to think through yeah like a really special dinner um like toys that only come out for shabbat uh oh fun we'll, like light like a little bit of a like incense or something and that you know it like smells up the whole house and they like run around they like i'll, I'll play an audio track of, of a shofar to start you know and they just like That's lose awesome. their minds, and then we like light the Shabbat candle, and they're per- they're perfect ages to not know yeah. like how strange they're going to appear to their friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's that's yeah. been a lot of fun, like kind of building the anticipation. And like I was saying, you know, they also are very mindful of like how much more FaceTime they're getting with their parents because our we turn our phones off for twenty four hours. So that's that's been awesome. really enriching for us too. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I, I was thinking about that, and so I'm sure that does make it more exciting. But anyway, we're happy that it's Friday. Hope everybody is looking forward to a great weekend. Hey, I wanted to start today uh, talking about Franklin Graham, and people might be like, okay, enough with like the big celebrity Christian guys, but but here's the deal. These types of people, Franklin Graham, you know, uh, when we've talked about James McDonald or Bill Hybels or other people through the years here, uh, they speak when they speak, many people in our culture go, that's what all Christians believe. Right. And and I do think we need to confront some of these things and cause us, because there are also people I know in my church or people I know in my sphere who are like, yeah, I, I agree with everything Franklin Graham says or whatever else it might be. And so Franklin Graham, uh, he went on Twitter last night and, and he wrote a long post. Uh, he wrote, shame, shame as he blasted the 10 GOP members of the U.S. House of Representatives for joining the Democrats in the article of impeachment. And he goes on to talk a little bit about that. And I would say, okay, you could disagree with these things. I want to bring up two points to what he said, Ian, and I would love for you to talk about the danger of of what he said on these two very particular points. Uh, One, he says, uh, and these 10 from President Trump's own party joined in the feeding frenzy. That's this feeding frenzy he's trying to say there is for hatred of President Trump. It makes you wonder what the 30 pieces of silver were that Speaker Pelosi promised for this betrayal. Uh, just thoughts on that and also the danger of using that imagery. What do you think from Franklin Graham there? I don't think it's great. 
<laughs> okay, I'm glad you said that. Um, I feel like we've had this conversation a number of times over the last year, year and a half. What was the what was the other one? There was lines from a hymn that then morphed into God Bless oh, America. What or, was, yeah, what was that? Yes. We we've been seeing a good deal of that. It feels like more so recently than I I recall. Um and and Franklin Graham is certainly certainly entitled to to his opinion. Absolutely. Like you were saying, to recognize the kind of like weight and gravity that your platform holds. I'm sure he doesn't need us to tell him that. I know, I'm sure that he knows that. Uh, I would be really careful about drawing any sort of connection between what he sees as a betrayal of Donald Trump and a betrayal of Jesus Christ. That is that is a. That's right. And this is coming from if you've listened to the show at all, you know that Brian and I can both be irreverent at times and mildly <laughs> yes, sacrilegious like yeah I'm not, yes you can <laughs> yeah we're not saying this from the position of of like a couple of a couple of prudes or whatever like i i totally get it but that especially given the the climate right now mm-hmm. um to even allude to something like that to me and again you know we talked about this a couple of days ago words create worlds and and words matter whether they're spoken or posted on facebook and i think i think we need to be really careful about that Absolutely. And so to use the Jesus imagery again, it's something like you said, we've talked about so many times on this show, is that when who we vote for is not just our preference, but is good versus evil, it's God versus Satan. It's this imagery of uh, you're either on God's side or you're against him. Uh, That inflames everything and really can lead to things like we saw last Wednesday at the Capitol, where you're fighting for justice or for what's right. You're on the side of good. You're you're on a crusade for God and, and you start to see these things and you wonder, how do we get there? Well, it's saying that anybody who was against the president here uh, took their, quote unquote, 30 pieces of silver from Pelosi, which is clear imagery to the betrayal of Jesus. As you said, here's the second thing that I found most dangerous about what Franklin Graham said. Uh, Let me see if you thought this was dangerous as well. He said, after all that Trump has done for our country, you would turn your back and betray him so quickly. So he asked that as a question of the Republican uh, lawmakers, but also just Republicans in general who are turning against the president, he says, after all that he's done for our country, you would turn your back and betray him so quickly. What do you see as dangerous about that line of reasoning? There? Well, I kind of want to weigh in for a second because, I, and again, I'm not, we're not having coffee with these people. We're not inside those walls, so I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you want to call it a betrayal, I don't know that I would necessarily use the word quickly. It, it actually feels like the more and more that you know, people who maybe had been diehard GOP in the past are saying like, yeah, we finally had enough or like, I feel like I'm hearing a whole lot more of that rather than Mm -hmm. like some sort of like unforeseeable quick 180. It's sort of like, ah, this has been building for a while. And I, I just finally, I've, I've had enough, but that's, I don't know if that's what you're hearing. That seems to be way more the rhetoric that I'm hearing. Oh, I've heard that from a lot of people who are, you know, uh, they were more the types who maybe voted for the president for specific reasons and kind of right. said, I don't really like how he tweets or this and that and saying no way. Uh, the reason I asked too about that question that, that Franklin Graham asks is because how many stories have you and I done of uh, of abusive pastors or uh, you know, men or women who should no longer be in leadership where the where the response is after all they've done? After all the sermons they've preached, after all after all they did to grow this church, how could you sure. turn your back on them? Yeah. And that's how uh, dangerous people remain in power. 
is uh, when we ask whether it be politically or in a business or in a church, as you and I have often talked about, it's when you ask the question, because it's not saying even he didn't do anything wrong here. He said, after all he's done for us, you know, implied here, judges or laws or taxes, whatever else it might be, uh, you better be loyal. And, And man, that is such language that we have rave, uh, raged against uh, when it comes to churches over and over and over again. Well, he preaches great sermons. Well, he raised a lot of money. Well, he uh, grew us to thousands of people and it becomes this. So therefore, stay in his corner. And Franklin Graham's asking the same thing of, of these lawmakers here, which I just think is so dangerous. So go ahead and read this uh, up at our Facebook page. As you can tell from Ian and I, both of us. Uh, took to, uh, to use yesterday's word, took some umbrage <laughs> with what. Oh, uh, with don't, what? Don't associate me with that word. I don't. I, <laughs> <laughs> it is my word. It is my word. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Don Everts. Uh, he is the author of a book called "The Hopeful Neighborhood Field Guide: Six Sessions on Pursuing the Common Good." Right where you live, we're going to have that discussion here on the Common Good next here on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, by the author of a book called The Hopeful Neighborhood Field Guide, Six Sessions on Pursuing the Common Good Right Where You Live. Uh, That author is Don Everts. Don, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you guys. That's absolutely our pleasure. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, I cut my teeth in ministry uh, with campus ministry, with InterVarsity. So I did that for 14 years, and then I was a parish pastor. I'm an ordained Presbyterian pastor. I did that for 12 years. So, uh, and And now I'm getting to kind of handle research and think about kind of relevant issues that Christians are facing in a really, you know, quickly changing culture and social context. And so I get to kind of feed my curiosity and learn and then, you know, invite other people into the questions with me. I love that. My uh, my pastors, our bosses, Dave and John Ferguson, they just released a book called Bless, and uh, I'm reading some of the descriptions about your book. I was like, man, you guys really would be friends because this this notion <laughs> of like wanting to see our communities and neighborhoods flourish is something that we just talk about all the time. And I, I imagine people, maybe even pre-COVID, were excited about that, but maybe now we're wondering, like, how can we even think about our communities and neighborhoods in a, in a pandemic reality? How have you had to sort of shift some of your own thinking with regards to this book in light of this mm-hmm. cultural moment we're in. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it cuts both ways because on, on the one hand, uh, all the research has to do with like, how can you be more present in your neighborhood and know people and be known and partner with Christians and non-Christians alike and pursue the common good. And all of a sudden it's like, but don't touch anyone, right? So so there yeah. is a way that there is a way that we're having to kind of contextualize that. What are How can you be creative, et cetera? But the other thing is uh, folks are really cl- – they're cloistered in their neighborhoods now, right? <laughs> Most right, people right. aren't commuting anymore. They're staying in their neighborhoods. And I think, you know, based on my experience, my friends, my my home church, this kind of hunger for touch, for relationship, mm-hmm. for authenticity, for locatedness is pretty strong right now. And so mm-hmm. there, there, you know, so there actually is a hunger for a kind of authentic 
relationship and reaching out. And then frankly, you know, I've, I've been accused of being prescient that we studied, you know, what it's like to pursue the common good. And people were like, did you know things were going to get so divisive and that it would be so prophetic and refreshing to talk about the common good? And said, no, uh, but, but, but so that, so the idea of how should Christians posture themselves towards the world around them? It's pretty live right now. Yeah. Uh, and Don, it, in your uh, in your bio, so everyone we have on sends this little bio, and I, and I love the first line. You call yourself reluctant to call yourself an evangelist, and you also have a book called The Reluctant Witness. Could you speak mm-hmm. to even someone who's in the midst of it uh, to call yourself reluctant to do that? Why do you say that? Uh, it, partial honesty, right? Just just kind yeah. of uh, yes. uh, uh, I am reluctant. I'm a card carrying introvert. I you know <laughs> I'm an angsty Gen Xer. So so there's so much about me that that comes to giving good news and sharing good news reluctantly. Um, and, and interestingly, a couple years ago for that book you mentioned, we did research on spiritual conversations. And what we found was that most Christians are reluctant to talk about their faith with other Christians mm. or with non-Christians to a mm. shocking degree. So so that's part of it is, you know, th- there's one thing to have a gregarious, extroverted uh evangelist who's like, come on, y'all be like me. And that's just not who I am. <laughs> but, but rather it's like, hey, I'm just as reluctant, but I jumped in the water and the water's not as bad as I thought it would be. And in right. fact, there, there's awesome. something really fun about it. So so that's uh, that's where the reluctant witness comes from. See, and I really appreciate that because as a pastor, I feel like I'm often hearing people say, I would do the thing that you just preached about, but I'm an introvert, so hard pass. And I'm not. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, yeah, I, t- I totally get it. Everything I just talked about would be way more in the wheelhouse <laughs> of an extrovert. And we had you on a few months ago to talk about your your book, The Hopeful Neighborhood. And, and then you created this field guide. I'm wondering, yes. is part of the rationale behind something as practical as a field guide is what you were just explaining? Like, okay, how do we give additional sort of teeth and handles to actually live this out? Why Why the field guy? Where did the inspiration for that come from? Yeah, yeah, great question. Two, two things, really, because in, in the book, The Hopeful Neighborhood, it, we look at the biblical call to pursue the common good. We look at, you know, Christian history and how, how people have done that. And so there, there were two things that, that motivated me to work on the field guide. Number one is, yeah, how do we like brass tacks, get down to the practical? If someone says, okay, I want to try it. What are some tools? What are some resources? What's a step-by-step process they could follow? And that's that's what we have in the field guide. The other motivation was I, I just have this heart to see Christians and non-Christians doing this together. And, and, and Christians can link arms with non-Christian neighbors and say, hey, let's, let's try to bless our neighborhood together. The, and, and that is a beautiful thing where you can build relationships with the people right around you and uh, but it's hard to do that by saying, well, come read this Christian book with me that talks about a biblical, you know, doctrines that lead to this. So so the Hopeful Neighborhood Field Guide, it's uber practical and it is non-theological. It, it is written for Christians or non-Christians because we, we wanted to really be able to empower Christians to gather a group of neighbors together and do a good thing together. And and frankly, yeah. that, that it gets more people pursuing the common good, which is a win. Uh, but also, it, it's a way for us to start building bridges with non-Christians around us and building trust, which we know in our current context is an evangelistic activity. If you, if you have any hope of sharing the gospel in word, 
you you have to create a trusting relationship. And this is mm-hmm. a yeah. productive, fruitful way of doing that. That's awesome. Uh, Don, I'm wondering, what's the primary response you get from uh, from Christians when, when you point them to their neighborhood? Is it excitement? Is it, oh, I don't really like my neighbors? Or is it like, <laughs> I've never really thought of my neighborhood like this? What's, what's, the, what's the most feedback you tend to get about neighborhoods? It depends where someone lives. Uh, so, so I will say for suburbanites like myself, the most common kind of visceral reaction is, well, I, I don't know the people in my neighborhood. And my, my neighborhood isn't set up to know each other, right? right, right. So isolationism is kind of uh, a natural part of the suburban experiment. It's, it's part of how it was built. And so that's, you know, a lot of people are, are what we call living above place. Like they don't they don't have an active relationship with the people in place right where they live. And so for some people, that's a barrier. And and, and you have to help them name and embrace and notice their neighborhood. People from urban context or rural context, I've found, tend to more naturally be thoughtful about the people in place right around them. And so so they are maybe a little bit more, okay, but – you know, can you really make a difference? Uh, it, it, some some of the hesitation there is 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 this about you know riding in as a white knight on a horse to save the day, or is this something I'm doing with people? So those are some of the so people's initial reaction depends a little bit, but I will say what's mm-hmm. common is, boy, you know, trying to bless your neighborhood is a ultimately a pretty low bar when, when you mm-hmm. compare it to let's go save the whole city or let's yeah. go overseas and make a difference. So, so it's actually like, like consummately doable. And, and, and so that does, I think, make pretty people pretty excited. Absolutely. That other voice here is Don Everts. Uh, he is the author of The Hopeful Neighborhood as well as The Hopeful Neighborhood Field Guide, which is six sessions on pursuing the common good right where you live. And we're thrilled to, uh, to have Don join us for another segment here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm, and we're thrilled to be joined for a second segment by Don Everts. Don is the author of The Hopeful Neighborhood and The Hopeful Neighborhood Field Guide, which is six sessions on pursuing the common good right where you live. Uh, and Don, thrilled to have you joining us again. As we continue talking about this, uh, we were talking a little bit off air about starting with with the gifts that are already in your neighborhood, starting with the things that are already in your neighborhood. Can you flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah. You know, when it comes to anything associated with like, quote unquote, community development, there's kind of a knee jerk uh, response that people have, which is let's look for problems and then bring in resources to try to solve the problems. That, that's, a, that's a very common approach. Um, unfortunately, it's not always helpful and sometimes can be really damaging. So, uh, so the, the book is really based on what, what people call asset-based community development, ABCD, which is basically a fancy way of saying it actually turns out to be, and the research backs this up, more hopeful and fruitful in the long term if you look around for what's strong with a neighborhood and start there and look for possibilities, given what's strong, what could we do rather than looking for what's wrong? So that that's kind of a, a uh, the process that's at the core of the field guide is stuff like how do you discover gifts that are already in your neighborhood? How do you right. uh, discover Ooh. gifts that 
individual gifts that neighbors have? How do you discover neighborhood gifts, right? Gifts that are embedded in the place right around you. And then what's the process from there to imagine hopeful possibilities and then pursue them? I love that. Don, last time you were on the show, actually, I confessed to you that uh, I really loved your book, Jesus with 30 Feet, which was published, I think, like in 98 or 99. But if you look at the other books that you've written, you have another one called Getting Your Feet Dirty. You also have um, The Reluctant Witness, The Spiritually Vibrant Home, Go and Do. Like when you look back over your career of books and topics you've chosen to tackle, do you see a theme like throughout them all? Or do you see more of a, a journey, a progression? That's a great question. That, that's a really fun question. <laughs> Almost almost everything I have written uh, has resulted from embarrassing but glorifying to God growth in my life. <laughs> so so almost all of it – I would say if there's a theme, it's a theme of my reluctant discipleship and, and how good Jesus' ways are and kind of on the other side of – of fighting my way and, and finally agreeing to try some things Jesus's way, looking back and going, oh, that's so much better. <laughs> so whether, whether it's how do you share the faith with others or wh- whether it's how, how do you embrace a missional lifestyle or whether it's how do you focus on Jesus rather than getting caught up in um, other parts of theology. Right. Uh, I, I would say, I would say that's, that's a theme, kind of Don's uh, silliness and God's goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, Don, so where I'm sitting right now, uh, I'm, out, I'm looking out over my neighborhood mm-hmm. where I live. And, and wh- how you described the suburbs before is very much like my neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Like just mm-hmm. it's not really set up to get to know each other. And I'm sure a lot of people listening feel the same way about their neighborhoods. But if they're listening to you going, yeah, I really want this. Uh, what's the first step? What would you encourage people to do first? Is it go knock on doors? Is it throw a barbecue? Is it what? What is it in order to start down this road? Yeah, buy that's a great book. idea. If so, yeah, of course, buy, buying the book. Uh, <laughs> no. Buy the book. <laughs> so, so for, uh, discovering the gifts is the first step, but for a lot of people, there really is this pre-step of get to know your neighborhood. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. so we've developed a lot mm-hmm. of resources The the field guide is one thing, but there's gobs of free stuff online, hopefulneighborhood.org. And I mean, we've, we've developed like neighborhood bingo. So we have these bingo cards and, and, and people can, and it's filled <laughs> with just different ways of getting to know your neighbors, whether that's throwing mm-hmm. a barbecue door, door whatever mm-hmm. it is, there's so many different ways. So for some people, there is a pre-step and that is to start to reintroduce yourself to the people around you and the place around you. And we have ideas in the field guide on that mm. online. And then and, but but really it's not just about relationship. The hope then is is it, you start by discovering the gifts. And uh you, you know so so that could be by starting with individual gifts, gather a few neighbors together and say let's find out what individual gifts we have. We've developed this research-based, it's called Every Gift. It's an online assessment that kind of helps people name and discover and own kind of some of the aptitudes, abilities, and skills that they have. Hmm. Again, that's a thing any Christian or non-Christian can do. And and to kind of say, man, look at among our neighbors, look at all these gifts that we have. And then we have other processes uh, that people can follow for finding out what gifts are already in the neighborhood, right? We have six neighborhood mm-hmm. gift types and how do you drive around and find those and what research can you do, et cetera, et cetera. So the place to start is getting reacquainted with your neighborhood and then just having fun discovering what gifts are already there, which which is an inherently hopeful task. 
I love that. I think I brought this up yesterday. There's a lady, she started something called the turquoise table, which is essentially the whole story was she just set up a picnic table at the very front of her front yard because she realized she didn't actually know anyone in her community, which is sort of like what you're describing as the first step. And it like grew into this whole kind of other thing. I'm wondering, I had this thought as I was hearing you talk, do you think that people sometimes do with their neighborhoods, what we're inclined to do with relationships or jobs like, oh man, their relationship is so much better or that job would be so much more fulfilling. Do you feel like sometimes people have a kind of grass is greener mentality when it comes to like their neighborhood and like, ah, if I just lived totally. in a city or a neighborhood like that. And if so, yeah, totally. why, why are we inclined to do that? Yeah. I mean, maybe because the barriers that are in front of us are just more, more obvious to us. And mm. so like, so, so for me, like I, I, I'm, I'm disaffected with my suburban neighborhood. And I, I do all this reading on like urbanism and the design of neighborhoods and the radius of curbs and all this kind of stuff, right? I nerd, I nerd out about it. And, and, and so I notice more the barriers that are in my neighborhood, right? So right. The, the social the, – the, the distance Ooh. between people, the lack of sidewalks, the commuter nature of the people who live here, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, man, if I just lived in the city. You know, mm-hmm. then, then I'd be able to do this. Now, the reality is for my friends who live in the city, they, they face their own barriers. So maybe it's the fact I, – I agree with you. I do think there's a – well, I, I could do this if I lived in, you know, a different neighborhood. <laughs> right. But, but the reality is every, every neighborhood is beautiful and broken. Every neighborhood has its a- assets and then barriers to getting to know people, et cetera. And this is one of the one of the uh, chapters we have in the field guide. Actually, is a hopeful neighborhood is where neighbors value their neighborhood's uniqueness. Mm. And so we we explore the just the difference it mm. makes for someone to embrace their neighborhood in in all of its uniqueness. I mean, we, we talk about the story of where that phrase "keep Austin weird" came from, and the guy who came up with that. And there, there's something right about coming to a place where you're like, man, my neighborhood's weird. And I, and I, and I like it. It's unique, but it's mine. And it's where I live now. Praise God. So, so there is something important about valuing, uh, your neighborhood's uniqueness. And for some people, it's going to take a process for them to get to that place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don, it's always fun to have you on. We want to make sure people know where to find all of your writings, your books. So why Mm -hmm. don't you give us all the social media websites, anything you can give our people. Great. Great. So we have a whole kit of materials about hopeful neighborhoods um, on the Lutheran Hour Ministry site. So people can go to lhm.org slash together. And on that page, you'll see the research, the bingo cards, you know, all all that kind of stuff that we're developing. (laughs) And then for all the rest of it, and again, this is a site that's helpful for Christians and non-Christians, hopefulneighborhood.org. We have, we have videos, you know, lo- lots of resources. And uh, starting March 1st, uh, all of that, most of all of it is going to be launched, but most of it's there now. Nice. Oh, that's great. Uh, also, you can follow Don on Twitter at Don Everts, E-V-E-R-T-S. Don, this is always our pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Brian and Ian, it's great to talk to you. I love that you are all about the common good. It makes me happy. Uh. Thanks, man. Likewise. We appreciate We appreciate that. Uh, you are listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, if you missed the interview, we were just were able to do with Don Everts, uh, talking about his book, The Hopeful Neighborhood. Uh, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that on the podcast. You could go ahead and subscribe, rate, review as as Don helped us kind of talk about what are the opportunities, what, what we're being called into our own neighborhoods around us. Just a really good word. And Ian, I was thinking, I was thinking uh, if I had time, I, you know, we always think of questions as we let somebody go. And I was thinking as a pastor, uh, what would he say to the pastors out there who are thinking to themselves, I don't want to push my people into the neighborhood. I want to draw them into the church and I want them bringing people to the church. How do you think Don uh, or someone like him would have answered a question like that? Man, I think that's an awesome question. They're actually coming on uh, next week, but Dave and John Ferguson just wrote a book. It's not just a book, though. It's something that they developed, I think, like eight or nine years ago that we've actually practiced as a church. It's called uh, The Blessed Practices, The Blessed Strategies. And part of what they found in the research for that book, actually, is that when we focus on on blessing our communities, blessing our neighborhoods, bless, blessing those people rather than just trying to convert them, uh, mm-hmm. you will actually, and I hate using this word, you actually get better results. Like they, that approach actually found more conversions. And so I think sometimes when, when we get kind of obsessed with this, like come to us and our address to see the thing. And, you know, if you yeah. just get them in the door, then they'll, then they'll be convinced. And that's sometimes the case, but I think especially going forward, it's actually going to be way more effective. And I would argue more Christ-like to just simply be thinking about who are my neighbors and what does my community need and how can we, and again, not yeah. to, you know, tout our own name of the show, but like to be Christians for the common good. And I, I think that, I think he's spot on. I think his instinct is right on. And I think even pastors that are, you know, maybe interested in different end results will find that investing in and strategizing for being missional just in your communities is just a, it's just a better way to, to follow Jesus. I think. Yeah. I'm excited to have Dave and John Ferguson on next week. I think it's Thursday or Friday sometime at the end of next week, they're going to come spend a good amount of time with us uh, and talking about their new book bless. And, and it really is, it's, it's, it'll come across it. Their practices are simplistic and life changing for a church and for individuals. And that's, those are the best kind of books, right? We're like, wow, this isn't rocket science, but it completely changes my paradigm and how I think about things. Mm-hmm. And so people like Don Everts do that. And I'm excited to have Dave and John on. Well, going down a different route, we talk a lot about social media on this show, and particularly what's the posture of the Christ follower when we're on social media? How do we act? What, what you know, when we comment or when we post or what's just our posture? And with that in mind at the Gospel Coalition, Daniel Darling uh, wrote earlier uh, last week on January 8th, he wrote a post entitled this, Resist the Pharisee Temptation on Social Media. Why don't you get us into this? Yeah, here's how he starts. He says, if you could have chosen one type of person to cancel in the first century, it would have been a tax collector. Jewish people, rightly skeptical of Roman power, I would add maybe more than just skeptical, uh, viewed tax collectors as turncoats, those willingly colluding with the governments to collect heavy taxes while taking a hefty commission off the top. Their work was gross profiting off the economic misery of their own people. In the Gospels, tax collectors, often referred to as publicans, were frequently lumped in with flagrant sinners as social bottom feeders. So when Jesus wanted to teach his disciples a lesson on repentance, forgiveness, and genuine faith, his choice of a tax collector as the hero came across as strange, almost insulting. 
And for him to choose a Pharisee as a foil was even more offensive. And yet, listen to the way Luke frames Jesus' parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. That's from Luke 18. So then he has this heading, who are the good people? The Pharisees were the good people. They were rightly uh, disgusted at the corrupt public servants who chased down their fellow citizens on behalf of the government and skimmed money off the top. And yet, in this parable... Who is the most aware of his own sin? It's the publican who went to the temple with lowered head and a heavy heart, confessing his sin and begging God for mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner, he said. At the same time, the Pharisee, the one known in the community for benevolence and goodness, who could be depended on to finger wag the greedy, was the least self-aware and the farthest from mercy. Listen to him and hear the echoes of our age. This is from Luke chapter 18, 11, and 12. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I get. I'm a good person, essentially. I'm on the right side of all the right issues, and I'm here to publicly declare this to those not as good as me. <laughs> so you can probably already pretty easily see how he's going to turn this into talking right. about our current cultural moment, specifically how we use social media. Yeah, he goes from COVID to racial unrest to divisive political election. There's no shortage of ways in 2020 to trust in ourselves and look down on everyone else. And so he, he's trying to take this to um, uh, to social media particularly, but it even expands beyond that. What happens when we as Christians become the ones who are thinking, I'm on the right side of everything and I need to tell everybody where they're wrong. And this idea of pride and this idea uh, of, of just our witness as we have that kind of posture, uh, he says, in an era where it's become a cultural right to declare that we're on the right side of history on every issues, Christians are not immune to Phariseeism. And so, Ian, if he's right there, uh, and and a lot of us have a tendency towards Phariseeism, as he says. What's the result there in not just in our lives, but in the in how we reflect Christ, maybe to the other people, whether it be online or that we come in contact with? Well, there's a couple of things going on here that I would say. One, you can be a silent Pharisee. So, like someone listening mm. might think, like, well, I've never. I've never gone after someone on social media. I've never had a hot take or a mic. I've never tried to like dunk over anyone. You're like, yeah, but you've certainly thought that and felt that way about other people. Like that's still a Pharisee, you know, and Jesus, if anything, talks a lot about what's happening in our hearts um, as massively significant. You know, when he talks about hmm. like, well, you may pat yourself on the back for having never murdered someone. But you've held anger towards someone, haven't you? You kind of murder them in your heart anyway. So that's that's one caveat that I would add. Like, it's not just about like people who are, you know, maybe to the rest of us, they seem like loud mouths. They're like, well, that's clearly a fair. We can be fair sake towards someone else's fair sake behavior. That's the irony. The other thing hmm. that I think requires a careful threading of the needle is I don't think what he's saying, or at least I'll, I'll put it this way. I wouldn't agree that it's never appropriate ever to speak out about things in some kind of public space regarding injustice or the exploitation of the marginalized and vulnerable. Like, in fact, quite the opposite. I think scripture speaks to that. So it's, I wouldn't want anyone to read this saying, well, okay, because we don't want to be Pharisees, so we can't ever point out things that aren't right in the world. I think, I think we need to, with also maybe a healthy dose of humility to knowing that we're going to get it wrong from time to time. We're not, all of us 100% always going to be on the right side of every debate and argument. And 
I had a couple of friends of mine just this last week who posted follow-up apologies really? on various social media platforms. Like, hey, I posted an article and I had a position about this. And it turns out there were some facts really, really shady in that article or new information came out or whatever. And I need to apologize to you all. And I thought, that's leadership. Yes. All right. I was, I was grateful for that willingness to say, Hey, I did sort of what, you know, what darling is doing here at the beginning of the article and I was wrong and I need to, I need to repent. So yeah, there's, that's a long answer that I don't really know answered your question, but I think there's probably a couple of offshoots and caveats with his, Mm -hmm. his big idea for me personally, at least. He ends this way. He says, to resist the Pharisee temptation is to be countercultural. It's to resist building a reputation or platform on the backs of other Christians. We can do this in small ways by the controversies we decline to engage and by the words we use when we do engage. But most of all, we resist self-righteousness when we freely confess that our sins are just as wicked as the sins of those we're most tempted to despise. So a good word from Daniel Darling. Uh, about Phariseeism and social media and that temptation uh, that we all face. Well, the first hour is in the books. Coming up next, uh, this word, whataboutism. And is whataboutism a mark of foolishness? Talking about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about what about ism. We're going to look at a tweet from my co-host, Ian Simpkins, and we're going to end the week with some good news. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. If you've missed any of the show, uh, including the interview we're able to do in the first hour with Don Everts, we'd encourage you to go find those at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can also go online to 1160hope.com or get our podcast. That's the best spot to do it. Get our podcast. Wherever it is, you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. We are grateful to those of you uh, who do that. Well, I gave them a warning in next, next segment. We're going to talk about a tweet from you. You didn't think I could make it through a whole week without talking about one of your tweets. Did you? <laughs> I, I certainly had hoped and prayed, but <laughs> we almost made it to the weekend, but so Oh no, we're going to bring one out. So no, it's a, it's a really good one that I read this Thanks. morning. I went, Oh, we got to talk about that one. That's good. That's good. <laughs> and uh, not controversial. So that we've got that going for us. So, uh, I but appreciate hey, you offering that caveat. Yeah, <laughs> people are tuning off that. Well, then why would I want to listen? But we're not. It's the old trying not to get Ian fired here. So that's what we're going for. Uh, <laughs> Smart. All right. So my apologies. Back to back articles from the same website from the Gospel Coalition, but they were two good articles. And so this one from Brett McCracken just today. What aboutism is a mark of foolishness? That word what aboutism is something I'd never heard of before, like the last six months or so, but now I seem to hear it all the time. But McCracken writes here, what about ism is a mark of foolishness? Let me just, uh, I'll get us into this. It says, we're supposedly the most scientifically advanced informed generation in human history. We have the entire accumulated knowledge of humankind on devices in our pockets. One would think this abundance of information would make us more wise, but then we witness what happened at the Capitol last week. Are we living in fifth century or ninth century Europe? Uh, Are we watching orcs breach helms deep in Middle Earth? (laughs) No, this is 21st century life in the most powerful nation in the world, and we're as foolish and barbaric as any generation prior. Uh, 
The Capitol insurrection, he writes, was horrifying enough as a spectacle of foolishness and symbol of civilizational decay. But another horrifying exhibit of foolishness has been the reactions to the event on social media, namely the widespread deployment of one of the laziest tactics to hit the rhetoric since the ad hominem. And that is what about ism? Uh, so what about ism? What is it? What about ism turns the tables in an argument by responding to one accusation by deflecting to something else egregious, even if unrelated. Yell. Yeah. Well, what about blank? In the world of logical fallacies, it's a form of a false dichotomy and closely related to both sideism. Another tactic of turning attention away from one wrong by suggesting another side is equally guilty of similar longs. So we see what about ism, he says, every day on social media, but it was especially prevalent following the Capitol insurrection. Instead of simply denouncing and disavowing the mob's deadly behavior, many social media users, including an an alarming number of Christians, offered what about comparisons to 2020's various unlawfully destructed BLM and Antifa protests. Then the whatabouts turned to social media censorship as throngs of Trump defenders deflected attention from the Capitol attack by pointing to encroachments of free speech by big tech. Let me pause there so we take a breath. Ian, this idea of what about ism, we've tackled it before the, well, yeah, the, the capital was bad, but what about this? What about this? But what would you particularly say? Uh, he calls it lazy, but but what is the danger, in your opinion, of uh, frequently using what about ism? I mean, he's probably going to go on to answer this way better than I can. The, <laughs> the problem that I see both at a micro and macro level is that you, you never actually end up talking about any of the issues. You could what about mm. anything, right? And what is what is the play after that? Like the in fact, this next sentence, ironically, says the reality is we can critique both the capital interaction and Antifa protests. We should be alarmed by both Trump spreading dangerous falsehoods on Twitter and by Twitter censorship like that. I find. Yeah. But even to post what I just read there, ironically, on social media would catch a firestorm of heat <laughs> and probably applause like that's. You know, the division that we see on social media isn't new, and that's not a topic that we haven't tackled probably ad nauseum, to be honest. But there is a a very real danger, I think, if we if we lack the focus and drive and determination to say, okay, this other thing in the back of my head, we'll get to that. But right now, the conversation is this. So I need mm-hmm. to actually interact with the facts. I need to, to take stock of the emotions that are bubbling to the surface as I engage with this person or this story or the string of stories, but I'm going to remain diligent in actually doing the hard, difficult work of digging beneath the surface of the thing we're actually talking about. And I think in a lot of ways we're losing that. And I use, you know, like we're in quotes because plenty of people aren't losing it and there's still academics and political scientists that are trained in learning how to do this, but it feels like, the social version of having 17 tabs on your browser open. You're like, you're just, you're just bouncing between unrelated things and sources and pictures and gifts and memes. You know, like it's they're not related. And, the, and when you do that, you're not going to actually, you know, when Cal Newport talks about deep work, like you're never going to drill that any, any deeper because you're just sort of skimming all the time. It feels like that's a, a lot of what, what about isn't just the deflection and defensivism. It also leaves us just, skimming headlines and clickbait. And I think that's a problem. 
Yeah, and, and it builds into our tribalism, too. A lot of isms sure. on this segment. But, like, uh, you know, I have to defend my my tribe at all costs. So I'm going to what about with uh, the people that we disagree with so that, uh, you know, if I can't justify what my tribe did, i.e. storm the Capitol, for instance, if that's your, uh, you know, if that's what you would consider your tribe, then how do I make it look like everyone else is as bad as what some of the people did? And 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 so it's the old... Uh, you know, I remember telling my kids when they were little, Hey, you don't just tear people down to make yourself feel better. And it's almost like the adult version of that. And he also talks about McCracken talks here too, about we have to have the ability to be able to uh, uh, talk about multiple things at one time and understand that this might need my attention now, but it doesn't take away from that. And uh, he goes on to later say, what's causing us to be so prone to what about ism? Uh, he says it's in large part it's because certain dynamics of our in our information age work against our wisdom and lead us to folly. I highlight three of these sources of our sickness in his book, My Wisdom Pyramid. But he says too much. Our brains are taxed by overstimulation, uh, overstimulation that they're weakened in vital ways. It's exactly what you were just talking about. Uh, mm. Too fast. The speed of information today works against our wisdom uh, mm. and too focused on me. The orientation of information around individuals is perhaps the biggest root cause of rising whataboutism in the narrow confines of our given tribalistic bubbles. Of course, you'll start to see this issue as the true scourge and those people as untrustworthy fools. I thought that was helpful with like the minute, a minute we have left, you know, what would be your, uh, what would be your takeaway, your caution to people? Because I think you're right. This is increasingly the way not just social media works, but a lot of this is just kind of the way our culture works. So uh, what's your caution? What's your takeaway from an article like this about what about ism? I mean, it's it's going to be a pretty um, boring takeaway. I think we need to okay. slow down. Like I, I mm-hmm. think that we need to we need to read slower. We need to post slower. We need to respond slower at a very practical level. And not just because it's our Shabbat today. We need to unplug. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you need to. I don't know that we really understand the level of harm we do to ourselves by being always connected, always on, always looking at a screen. And I think a lot of, you know, even with that list that you mentioned there, I think, I think we're incapacitated to really see and empathize and understand the position of someone else when, when we are only focused on us and it's really easy to only focus on us when everything is at this like breakneck pace, there's no space for like self-reflection to enter someone else's world or to even entertain someone else's worldview takes time. And, And most of us aren't, affording ourselves that time at all anyway. So we just sort of like dig our heels. I just keep getting the picture of like a tire spinning, but it's like caught in mud. You're, like, you're technically doing something and it is burning oil, You're but you're not going anywhere. And I think, uh, our, I think our pace is probably the thing that I would, I would go after the most. Man, it's like you read ahead to affirm as we close. This is how McCracken ends. As the world grows in foolishness, believers in Jesus need to be intentional about cultivating healthier, slower, more balanced, and largely offline habits of knowledge formation. If Christians who have framework for unshakable truth foundations and a rich heritage of wisdom traditions are not the ones bringing wise illumination to these new dark ages, then no one will. So this wow. is a, an important one for our day. What about ism up at our, uh, we'll have it up on our Facebook page. And it does always make you feel good, right? When you didn't read ahead and you're like, wow, nailed it. <laughs> a little bit. Although his was said so much more poetically. Uh, edited, 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 edited. Still, yes, yes. Still. 
All right, coming up next, I want to talk about a tweet that my co-host put out. I think it's a really helpful one. And if, if we have time, we'll get to a couple other things that stood out to me on Twitter. Next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. And a lot of times on this show, what you if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know Ian and I will go find uh, articles that we uh, really think kind of spur on discussion or get us thinking, uh, and we'll post those up on our Facebook page. But sometimes it'll just be something we see on Twitter, Facebook, wherever else that gets our mind going. And, and one of the things I enjoy doing is grabbing stuff from Ian's Twitter and Ian's Facebook. And I know that always makes you nervous, uh, but I will. I always like to preface this by saying Ian didn't even know I was going to do this. This isn't like, hey, could you get a couple of my tweets in there? Uh, in uh, fact, I you think imagine? you would. I think you would much prefer that I didn't do this. But, hey, that's what makes Correct. it fun. And so uh, <laughs> I, I uh, surprised Ian today, but I want to talk about this tweet, honestly, because I thought – not just buttering you up. I thought this was really insightful. I'd love to know where it came from. I'm always fascinated. Like, why'd you tweet this in this moment? But also I think uh, it's important for us as believers to kind of wrestle with and, and kind of understand what you're talking about here. So uh, a mere 17 hours ago, Ian Simpkins at, at Ian Simpkins tweeted this. God's presence is never what is lacking. We are always in his presence. What is often lacking is our awareness. I'll read it again. God's presence is never what is lacking. We are always in his presence. What is often lacking is our awareness. All right, Ian. So I would love to know why did you tweet that? Because they don't they rarely come in a vacuum. Like, well, I'll tweet about God's presence. So uh, <laughs> why did you tweet that? And and what's the uh what's the importance behind that? What what do you want people to be grasping there? Well, let me let me first just reiterate how uncomfortable I am with this entire segment. Just, I know. Just to be clear. Okay. <laughs> I know. Just so it's on the table. Um, so a couple of things. One, and I don't know if it's been happening more as of late or if I've just been paying attention to it more, but I, I feel like I've heard this woven into a number of prayers, like prominent prayers, people yeah. uh, inviting the presence of God or God, would you come near? You know, I, I've just been picking up on it a lot and maybe – it actually is happening in more. Maybe it's what's the um, the psychological event where like when you buy a car, then you see that car all over the road now. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, I think true. it's called Dunning Kruger effect or something like that. Okay. It's I don't know if I was just like picking up on it, but I was I was just really struck by it. And I, rem- I remember reading something from Richard Rohr years ago that carries the same kind of sentiment with what I, I wrote, to be honest. So I probably I, I really need to credit probably him and, and a podcast I was listening to. And I've heard other people say this before, um, but part of what I didn't realize till a handful of years ago when, like in the Lord's Prayer, for example, uh, one of the lines that is probably most famous is, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And often this the sense and sentiment is heaven heaven is like up there somewhere, right? Like we, we, literally, we literally point up over our heads. Oftentimes we will like look that direction when we're talking to God and in a first century context, there's a, there's really great scholarly work to assert like their understanding of heavens included heavens, like the clouds, but also would have been understood as like just the air around them. Like the air, like Ooh. as close as the air that's like on your chest or in your lungs or in your, like there's a, another Hebrew scholar I was reading a couple, a couple months ago who's talking about even the name of Yahweh was meant to 
like imitate breath, just the inhaling and exhaling of breath. And this one commentator said, if that's true, that means like the first thing you ever said as a baby was a prayer to God. And the last mm. words you'll ever say will be a prayer to God. This, this yeah, Yahweh is just this inhaling and exhaling. And I, I mean, I was just really, in, so it was kind of the, yeah, the merging of a couple of different things that I've been kind of reading or listening to. And particularly in a time where it feels like there's so much unrest yeah, and yeah. so much fear and anger and apathy, I thought, and again, what an imperfect platform, something like Twitter. Sure, like, oh, sure, here's, sure. How I'm, here's how I'm going to pastor people. I'll tweet something like that. <laughs> it I, helps though. I yeah. realize this is nuts, but like, I just really, and you'll notice it was like at 930 last night. I was like, I just felt, this will sound weirdly pastoral. I felt burdened to like mm. let people know, hey, you don't have to conjure God. You don't have to trick them to like come near or to respond to your email. You don't have to send up a flare using like fancy prayer words. And like, if you say Shekinah, he's like obligated to like come next door. Like <laughs> his presence is already here. If we would just ask him to open our eyes to it. And I think we so often get it mixed up that like he's, he's living on some other planet somewhere mm-hmm. and he's a good, he's a good God. So he's not like, he'll come visit if we ask him to like, what does it change if, if Emmanuel God with us means that his presence, his spirit is, is always right here. And then yeah. I felt convicted to be honest. Cause I'm like, I don't personally live cognizant of that truth every moment of every day. Like, when I'm sitting at a red light for longer than I'd like to, or a coworker says something really hurtful to me, or, you know what I mean? There's these things that distract us from that. And I thought, man, what a, what a helpful discipline that might be in 2021. If we could just pray, God, make me more aware of your presence already at work right here and now. Like that's something that I just felt like I'm going to anchor my next year in that. Well, I almost took it from a negative side. Like, well, if we don't, but let's take it from a positive side. Uh, so people can understand what, what do you think the result is in our lives uh, if we did grow in this? And if we were cognizant much more of that God is present, that that's not what mm-hmm. is lacking. What do you think the result would be in our lives? Man, there's a couple of things. One, I think we realize like just how loved by God we are. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's so easy for God to become sort of a, a genie in our psyche. Like, He'll do good things for me if I pray hard enough or long enough, whatever. But I think to be mindful not only of his presence, but that it's a loving presence, that it's a compassionate presence. I also think in a in a very kind of like missional sense, when we remember that his presence is near us, that it's also near the person that I'm having angry thoughts toward. You know, I think it changes the way we interact with other people. I think it helps us be more present with whatever moment we've been gifted, you know, like I'm in a weird emotional state with my kids being two and three and I can get distracted with, I got 10 more emails and I got a sermon to think or whatever. I think being aware of God's presence also helps me be more present in the little things with them, the really unremarkable and common and mundane things. But it like elevates all of those moments to have such a, a, a profound gravity to them because like, man, God is in this space. Like I think about, you know, Jacob in Genesis who says, surely God was in this place mm. and I was unaware. I was like, I don't want to live life unaware of that. That's I don't, good. you know what I mean? Like that's, I don't want to go through my life as a, as a father and a husband, as a pastor, like unaware that God's right here in our midst that we don't have to like conjure him or trick him or, you know, pray things into existence that he's already gone before us. I think that it just changes the whole posture of how we go about our days. 
Yeah, Ashley Herr, who's been on our show before multiple times, uh, he has helped uh, fill in when one of us isn't around. He wrote Mm -hmm. this in reply to your tweet. He said, uh, Sunday in my pastoral prayer, I caught myself praying for God's presence and had to stop and mid-prayer to acknowledge I was praying for what already existed. I then Mm -hmm. prayed for God to simply remind us of his already existing presence and that's that's good word there from ashley as well and so see this never disappoints man pulling out your tweets getting the uh again there's other ones i could have probably brought out that got you more in trouble but this one i think he, i i felt like uh i felt like it was pastorally needed like it came from a pastoral heart that just told people no uh, like understand the reality because so many of us do live our lives as if God is disinterested. God is just yeah. off there somewhere. Uh, and, you know, I'm just one in, you know, multiple billions of people. What, you know, why would God ever care about me? And and that's just not the message of scripture. And so I do appreciate it. Let me read it one more time. Ian wrote, God's presence is never what is lacking. We're always in his presence. What is often lacking is our awareness. So good word there, man. Good word. Well, Thanks, man. Hopefully that encouraged you out there. Uh, Coming up next, uh, we are going to talk about the movie Soul and the purpose-driven generation. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope that you're having a great Friday today. Looking forward to a good weekend. Uh, one thing we want to leave you with on this Friday is the holidays. We do this every day. Uh, I, I, Ian thinks I'm being sarcastic, but I do look forward to it. My kids are always like, what is the holidays today? And <laughs> you'll laugh in my, my daughter, Emily, she said the other day, she goes, oh yeah, there's an app for that. I'm like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> is so, it actually an app? Yeah. Or a website. Yeah. But she was like, oh yeah, though, there's an app where you can look up the holidays of the day. Like she knew it was national sticker day the other day. I'm like, oh, Okay. <laughs> I said, nope, I just learned them for me, and Ian just tells me. So what are the holidays today? Okay, here we go. First off, in uh, Malawi, it's John Chilimbwe Day. John Chilimbwe? Okay. Is that a a name you know? Oh, he was a Baptist pastor and educator. Wow, happy John Chilimbwe Day. (laughs) Okay, it's also National Bagel Day. Please tell me you're a fan of bagels. Of course. I mean, not every bagel, but for the most part, yes. Yes. I do not I think, like the uh, everything bagel. Anything with like onion on it, no thank you. But Oh, boy. See, I I think you uh, you have forfeited the right to say, of course, to any question <laughs> regarding food. Because <laughs> track record so far is suspect. Uh, it is National Hat Day, which, Sure. I'm wearing a hat right now, so happy day. Of course you are. <laughs> uh, National Strawberry Ice Cream Day. Ah, big fan, big fan. Uh, and then National Booch Day. Booch? Yeah, B-O-O-C-H. Do we have any idea what that is? Mm, I mean, we can check Google. We will do that this, if we don't know. This is a stretch. I wonder if it has something to do with kombucha. That's what, I, that's what I'm thinking of. Okay, we will check before the end of the segment here. But uh, I'm. Are you, are you a kombucha fan? I don't even know what that is. I thought I hope I was hoping you weren't going to ask. <laughs> you know what kombucha is, though? No, no. I I don't. I don't. What okay, is it? Well, you'll have to you'll have to look that up later then. 
What I, I'm looking it's a, it's up. A national, I'm looking up National Booch Day right now, and it says, "What is booch? Kombucha or booch is a slight is a lightly effervescent fermented beverage okay. with a bold, invigorating <laughs> taste." <laughs> you were right across wow. the board. Wow. Okay. Ah, oh, that's really I feel funny. pretty good about myself. Okay, I, I I need to stop reading. That makes for bad radio. Where I'm just reading right now. <laughs> yeah, excuse us. We're just gonna read the internet for a little bit. I'm just gonna read to myself right now. Please enjoy the quiet. <laughs> so at Christianity Today, they wrote this article. Timothy Thomas wrote "Soul" uh, in quotes, the movie "Soul" that's out and the purpose-driven generation. It says Disney Pixar's latest film reminds us that life is meaningful beyond achieving our goals. Or saving the world. So I found this to be really interesting. You know, we talked to Tish Harrison Warren uh, about her de- her book. Uh, what is it called? Liturgy of the Ordinary. Am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Or at least close. There, there, this idea of ordinary life and the importance versus us always talking about, you know, change the world. You've got this. Uh, and so... Uh, it talks about the movie Soul, which neither of us have seen. So I want to jump down, although my kids have actually seen it twice and said it is fabulous. Uh, but uh, you're not watching it with them. Not- I would love to. They watched it twice, happened to watch it twice when I wasn't around. Uh, but I will watch it. So it says this. Um we commit, let me just read kind of how this article ends, and I'd love to jump into it. It says, we commit ourselves to bringing the passion of Christ into every area of our mundane lives. In mm-hmm. doing so, we experience what it means to be alive and to be human in ways God designed. If we bear in mind that our daily doings can aim our love and desire towards God, our labors cease being drudgery, wrote Jamie Hughes. Uh, let me skip down a little bit further. Uh, Jesus came to show us to be human, said Pastor Zach Lambert, how to love God and our neighbor, how to depend on the spirit and see its fruit manifest in our lives, how to care for the hurting and needy among us, how to fight for justice and against oppression. But for someone who's constantly seeking to find meaning in the next big thing for her life, everything will continually feel meaningless. We can miss out on the life God has put before us. Like Joe, which is the main character from Soul, we too can overstress the idea of, quote, being born to do something. But the truth is that we weren't born to do anything but abide in Christ. We live in Jesus, Acts 17, 28. It's possible we define our worth by our purpose and subsequently blind ourselves to the greatest blessing and wonder of being defined by our identity in Christ. Hopefully, uh, Thomas ends here. Uh, 2020 reminded us to appreciate the wonderful gift of abiding. And if not, soul prompts us to devalue the ceaseless chase of a singular purpose and find meaning in ordinary life because God is the one who provides the meaning for us. I thought that was so well-written. Ian, you'll be proud. I stole one of your lines on this show in my sermon the other day. Oh, wow. uh, That we are not, and I did not, uh, I did not attribute it to you, that we are not human doings, we are human beings. I fleshed that out a little bit. Uh, But we've talked enough about this to know that I know what you think, but why don't you just kind of reflect on on the ending there about uh, the the, the, uh, the importance of abiding, and identity versus what's the next big thing we have to accomplish. Yeah, gosh, there's a a quote earlier in the article by uh, Clea Wade, also Mm -hmm. writing about soul. And uh, she writes, let go of trying to identify yourself by one idea or goal. Instead, commit yourself to bringing purpose and passion into each conversation, workspace and home space that you are a part of. I really like that Mm -hmm. as sort of a a call to action. I, I think it was probably a few months ago now I, I posted something like 
you're an image bearer with work to do, not a work doer with an image to maintain or something, something like that. Oh, that's good. I think we get it out of whack though. I really do. I think that we've, especially you've been in the church for a long time. You've probably heard a pastor preach on image of God, probably to the point where you're like, is there anything else to preach on? You know, like mm-hmm. I, it can almost become just background noise for us. And we pretend like we understand it, but then we live as if it's not true. And I, I feel the the tension here because I understand the sentiment behind, I mean, you know, the author goes on to list a number of the books that we've talked about even on the show, Piper's Don't Waste Your Life or Rick Warren's mm-hmm. Purpose Driven Life. Um, I think there's wisdom in those things too. And, you know, every commencement speech I've ever heard is talking about, you know, going and changing the world. But every once in a while, someone in that audience actually does go and change the world. I don't, yeah, I don't think true. it's necessarily uh, evil, but I just, I, I, I often feel like it's misguided. That's That was, in some ways, part of the impetus behind us starting Beauty in the Common. It's why I've like so gravitated towards this word common, with Beauty in the Common and the common ear and the common good. And it's not just that it's about some sort of shared experience, but that I believe that God is as present in the mundane and ordinary as in the spectacular. But we have this sort of obsession with seeking the next spectacular and Mm -hmm. back when we could still go to conferences, right? How many people talked about coming back from a retreat with a spiritual high? Yeah. That's not an evil thing, but if that's the thing that we keep craving, like I need to have that level of a dopamine rush, well, that's not sustainable. That's going to lead to some level of, I mean, dare I say even like spiritual addiction, you know, like what does it look like to recognize God's presence and purpose in playing on the floor with your kids or like yeah. sharing a meal with your spouse or just going for a walk, not to burn calories, just to be present with God. Like I think we have these mundane common opportunities all the time. And sometimes our like hyper obsession with like, you know, sort of a Hollywood rags, the riches story mm-hmm. um, can leave us missing, you know, in a lot of ways, like we were talking about the last segment, the goodness of what God has right in front of us. Yeah. If you're a, if you're a regular listener to the common good, you know, this is something we talk about often identity in Christ and uh, finding, like you said, beauty in the mundane. And, and we talk about it all the time because it's so hard to do. And we probably talk most about the things we struggle with the most probably. And so this is just really timely and something that we've got to get our arms around. I'd encourage you to read it. It's called soul and the purpose driven generation at Christianity today. We have it up at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page at common good talk. Well, we are going to end the show and the week with some good news right out of the Good News Network. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Good news, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday. If you've missed any of the show, you want to catch up on old shows, old interviews, best spot to do that is the podcast. Go get the podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. You can also go online to 1160hope.com. You can ask Alexa to play The Common Good. Uh, or you can also read the articles we've discussed at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. We really do appreciate all of you who do listen on a regular basis. We'd love to hear back from you. Uh, It's always fun to hear back from people uh, who are listening. So something we introduced, oh, gosh, now we're going on nine, ten months ago since early on in the pandemic. uh, Ian introduced us to this website called the Good News Network, where we could just hear 
uh, and just read stories that put a smile on your face because there's so much darkness, right? The Capitol, all that happened 10 days ago or so, uh, the pandemic continuing. There's just, you could really get just just overly burdened by the bad news of everything that's going on. And so we've kind of committed every now and then to just sharing just good news stories for no other purpose than just to hopefully put a smile on your face and remind you a lot of these stories of the good that's going on around us. So I've got five stories here from the Good News Network. Ian, as we always do, you choose whichever one you want to do. I so appreciate you giving me that freedom. The first one... Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's <laughs> talk. You, you're going to see why I did that. Let's talk about Dwayne <laughs> The Rock Johnson. I really set myself up for disaster there, didn't I? That was I really don't know if you, funny. Did you see this video already? Uh, see the video? No. Which video? This this video for this article. There's the, uh, oh, I didn't see it. I just read it. Post no. it. No. Yeah. Let me, let me share what's going on here. He says, there's a reason why Dwayne Johnson gets called the most likable celebrity around. Not only is he funny. He has his own foundation that helps at-risk and terminally ill children. Kindness just seems to be in his uh, in this actor's bones. As for his latest act, he just gifted a brand-new Ford F-150 to an old friend. On New Year's Day, the 48-year-old Fast and Furious star... Hold on. Yeah, He's I don't 48. think that's... Oh, I thought you were going to give... I thought you were going to call out the fact that they're making him the Fast and Furious star instead of all the other stuff he's done, but... That was the thing you latched on to, was I not giving... Rightful stardom to Vin Diesel. Okay. No, no, no. I, I no, no. I think of Dwayne Johnson with other movies or other things before Fast and Furious. Oh, did you think I he gotcha. was? You just thought he was younger than forty eight. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I, I probably would have guessed younger too. <laughs> anyway, it's true that The Rock's initial greetings didn't sound all that friendly. Hey, you son of a gun! Dwayne yelled across the parking lot, but his tone was just in jest. Bruno, who is the person that we're talking about here, took the actor in when he was homeless as a teen in Tennessee. Nine years later, after Johnson fell on hard times once again, while trying to make his name as a wrestler, it was Bruno again who came to the rescue and said he could live with him in his Nashville trailer. I love you, brother, Johnson wrote to his friend in a post on Instagram. Your kindness and heart helped change my life's trajectory. And when you're ready to retire from the business, you just say the word, I got you covered. Hmm. So it goes on, and there's a video attached of the... It's apparently it's listed here as a thirty thousand dollar truck and a gift of a financially stable future. Bruno, a former wrestling manager, couldn't hold back the tears. It's great. Go watch the video. It's wonderful. That's really cool. That's awesome. All right, next one. This Arkansas doctor forgave six hundred and fifty thousand dollars in medical bills for cancer patients to kick off twenty twenty one. If a cancer diagnosis is a patient's worst nightmare, not being able to afford life-saving treatment runs a close second. So when one oncologist recently forgave all his patients' outstanding debts, you might say he took bedside manner to a whole new level. Uh, Dr. Omar Atik founded the Arkansas Cancer Clinic in 1991. Over the years, countless patients received everything from diagnostics to radiation and chemotherapy at the Pine Bluff facility. Uh, In February of 2020, the clinic closed due to staffing shortages. At the time, there was close to $650,000 outstanding patient debt on the book. Dr. Atik uh, attributed the large sum to the fact that no patient was ever denied treatment, regardless of whether they could pay or not. Not for lack of health insurance or funds nor any other reason. I've always considered it a high honor and privilege to be someone's physician, more important than anything else. 
Uh, and it goes on to talk about his background and everything. But basically, he went on to forgive $650,000. I can't imagine what that must have been like for the people who were owing that money. What a, what a good, uh, a nice thing by that man. That's amazing. This next one kind of reminds me of our interview earlier on in the show with Don Everts, the hopeful neighborhood. Listen to this. Family farm in Maine couldn't make it after restaurants closed until the neighbors showed up. In 1996, organic farmers Ralph and Lisa Turner launched Laughing Stock Farm. That's amazing. On one fifth of an acre in Freeport, Maine, with trial and error eventually coming, uh, came success, a steady customer base, and twelve and a twelve and a half acre, twelve and a half. Whew, I read for a living. Twelve and a half more acres. I was trying to really believe in my heart that I knew what that sentence was. And <laughs> my heart was wrong. I got you. We've all been there. Here's what the website says. Our quality produce coupled with your commitment to purchasing fresh local vegetables has built our business into a sustainable family owned farm that will be able to serve you for years to come. When the pandemic hit last year, though, uh, suppliers to Portland area restaurants forced to close that future seemed very much in jeopardy. Their main source of income was suddenly gone. Left behind eight overflowing greenhouses plus 10 tons of veggies and cold storage of supply and zero demand. Zero sales translated to zero cash flow. With money already invested in produce they couldn't sell, a loss seemed inevitable and breaking even only a pipe dream. But rather than ditch the harvest, the Turners, who are both trained engineers, went back to the blackboard and came up with a plan B. The couple opened a farm stand selling pre-bagged produce at $3 a pop and sent the word out uh, via their community newsletter, uh, company newsletter. We bagged up stuff as if we were going to have maybe 10 people a day come. Lisa told the New York Times, we sent it out and probably as uh, probably 450 email addresses. And then people just started sharing it and sharing it and sharing it. The first day it was like, wow, that was a lot of people. The eggs were flying out here. We went through 130 dozen eggs in two Whoa. and a half days. It was insane. So the rest of the story is just about how the community, the neighborhood really, really rallied around this, this family in their time of need. And I am a sucker for stories like that. Yeah, and along that same line, here's one more. Hero Plumber has helped 10,000 vulnerable families fix heating and plumbing for free during the pandemic. A kind-hearted plumber has spent $77,000 during the pandemic helping thousands of vulnerable families help their uh, help fix their heating and plumbing for free. In 2017, James Anderson was called to a home for a second opinion and caught a heating company who'd attempted to con an elderly and disabled man uh, out of, uh, what are those, 5,500? That's uh, another, it's not dollars. It's something else for another country. <laughs> Disgusted and disheartened by this, he founded DEFER, Disabled and Elderly Plumbing and Heating Emergency Response, and has since helped 10,000 families. The 53-year-old pledged to help disabled and elderly people with their plumbing and heating, quote, whatever the cost. But he has since branched out during the pandemic to provide food parcels, PPE, and even paying for people's bills. The father of six children, uh, Anderson, says he has spent a lot of money during the pandemic alone, but added it was worth every penny if it kept people alive and warm. He goes on to say, we've all got a social responsibility to each other. We need to be there for each other. What an amazing story of how one man just changed the lives or changed, uh, helped out so many people. All right, just we, read we us the uh, enough time for this last one. Yeah, let me just read the headline. Just the headline. You ready for it? Mm-hmm. These women have been pen pals for seventy years, forging a true friendship from ten thousand miles away. And the awesome. photo, the photo alone. This is why I love this website, man. Like, there's no, there's hardly ever any breaking news. There's hardly ever even anything controversial. Right. It's just sort of like 
we're just scouring the internet for positive stories, and here they are. And I, for one, am a fan. Pen pals. They said, I just real fast in the story, it said when they first started writing letters, it would take six weeks to get to each other, the pen pal letters. And that's gone for all this time. Just a really cool story. Well, we wow. hopefully, hopefully that put a smile on your face. Like we said, there's lots of hard stuff going on in the world right now. Uh, and it could be really easy to get really down. And so hopefully just taking a break and reading some good news hopefully helped you out. Well, we hope that you have a great weekend. If you missed any of our shows this week, you can find it at our podcast. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and you have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.